Welcome to our latest episode of our podcast mini-series on M&A for Registered Investment Advisors. The purpose of our podcast is to reveal what happens inside the deal room, give RIAs advice on how to succeed at M&A, and also provide real-life examples of situations and tactics so RIAs can be more equipped to win and close more deals. Today's episode is about closing. Joining me today for this important topic is the CEO of one of the most successful and fastest growing RIAs in the country, Marty Bicknell from Mariner Wealth Advisors. I'm Harris Balch, head of M&A and capital strategies for Dynasty Financial Partners. And now, let's go inside the deal. This podcast is available on our website, www.dynastyfinancialpartners.com, Apple Podcasts, and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe to Inside the Deal on your favorite podcast platform or through the episode page on our website. And if you find the content useful and feel others could benefit from it, feel free to share it widely. Welcome everyone to part three of our four-part mini-series Inside the Deal. Last episode, we learned about how to execute a deal, but being good at execution only goes so far if you don't know how to close. Many folks out there say M&A is one part art and the other part science. And when it comes to closing, it's really a healthy mix of the two. Mariner Wealth Advisors is one of the largest RIAs in America, which has grown from roughly 300 million in AUM in 2006 to over 40 billion today, and was recently ranked the top five RIA in the US by Barron's. The third part of our podcast mini-series is concentrated on one of the most important topics in M&A, how to close deals. Marty, I'm so happy that you're able to join us today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm not sure how many viewers are familiar with Mariner. Can you tell everyone a little bit about your firm? Yeah, happy to, Harris, and and thank you very much for having me. It's definitely a pleasure. Mariner is a national wealth firm with 42 locations, 350 advisors. Um, We have 700 total employees and just over $40 in assets. Of our 42 locations, exactly half of them uh, were done through inorganic means, which means we acquired them. We're a holistic firm that has tax, trust, estate planning, insurance, retirement planning services, a practice management division that's all assembled to help our advisors have a better client experience and value proposition. Thanks, Marty. Did you ever think when you first started in the industry that M&A gone virtual would be a thing? How did you find adapting to this environment? Is it easier or harder to get deals done? You know, no, no way I ever imagined this. Um, I mean, I would say it's gone okay. I mean, not great, but okay. I mean, doing video calls uh, with prospective opportunities, um, I mean, it's fine. But being elbow to elbow with people when you're going through a process like this is so much more valuable. But, you know, I think the frequency of interactions has gone up because it's easier to just set up a quick video call. But the relationship building opportunity has definitely been impacted. Hopefully, things are starting to loosen up and we can actually um, have those face-to-face meetings again. But, you know, people have adapted. And, and as I started, you know, it's, it's going okay. So can you tell us about some of the deals that you've closed during the pandemic? Yeah. So technically during the pandemic, we've only closed one. And that was at the very, very beginning. Um, We have 
10 active opportunities right now that I'm pretty confident that four to six of them will close by June 30th. And, you know, as well alluded to, um, my only interaction has been through video. Wow. And, and given your history of success as a buyer of wealth management firms, you've seen a wide variety of sellers out there. How do you evaluate sellers both qualitatively and, and quantitatively? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the way we think about it and the way that you know I always try to articulate it to potential firms that we're looking at is you, know, you can take 90% of the deal and put it on a spreadsheet and get a black and white answer. Culture and client experience, you can't. Um, there's no way to you know put on a list um, you know the, the the relationship factor of it and whether or not you know people have those common beliefs. So for us, you know we spend a, a significant amount of our time in the diligence process on the culture of the organization, the client experience piece of it, making sure that's something that we want our flag on. Um, but, you know, I think that there, are the, as you know, this is an extremely fragmented industry. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, founding firms out there that were built on the expertise of one individual. And that makes it different. And that also makes it really exciting. So I think I read somewhere in a publication that you were quoted around using kind of the, the two-time revenue multiple as a good proxy for value. And despite the fragmentation in the industry, uh, there's just, you know, a lot of a lot of M&A going on right now. You're seeing valuations continue to spike up um, and and value can be preserved and protected with with structure. So, you know, when you think about that, that two time revenue multiple that a lot of folks use as almost a, a back of the envelope proxy to evaluate the the value of an of an RIA, do you, do you feel like that still holds true in this market? You know, I think um, that method is long gone. I think that you know the valuation explosion in the industry is has been real, and you know firms are are trading at historic um, you know high multiples to to EBITDA, and for the next year to three years, I don't I don't see that that changing. I, I don't see it pulling back for some time. There's just, there's just too many people chasing um, these opportunities. You've seen different types of markets, though. I mean, when you think about the sustainability of what's going on in the M&A marketplace for RIAs, is it really sustainable? Or do you think it's something that through different market cycles will potentially shift towards, um, you know, being a buyer's market? I'm a firm believer in cycles, and, and so, you know, the, there, there will continue to be cycles. Um, will we see the days of, of two times revenue being real again? Um, I don't know if we will in my career or not. I mean, we're, we're the, the spike that we've seen in multiples today will, I mean, will that, will the cycle cause that to, you know, pull back a little bit? I mean, probably, and, and frankly, it should, um, but, but seeing the cycle go all the way back to the beginning days of consolidation, probably not in my career. So that's interesting. I mean, if, if you feel like valuations are going to be sustainable and continue to be robust in the years to come, can you talk a little bit or give the audience some insights as to how you think about structure? Because clearly, you know, valuation is one thing. 
but but to protect value through structure is a, is another. So for those listening that are interested in M and A that are thinking about structuring their own deals, how do you think about uh, an optimal approach to to structure to reward value on the upside, but also protect value on the downside? Yeah, we we did our first transaction in 2011, and our structure has evolved. And today, our structure is relatively simple. We buy 100%. We buy 100%, we pay cash. So, you know, we put a three-year kind of earn-out bonus structure in place to, to help drive and incent the teams to to embrace our high growth mentality and in the integration process we want to go through and things like that. But we have tried and seen all kinds of cool ways of doing things. And quite frankly, we think they're too complicated in the simple you know method of valuing the business, um, writing a check and putting an incentive in place to grow the business over, uh, over a relatively short period of time has worked really well for us. Do you ever consider offering equity to partners that join the Mariner platform? Yeah, Mariner has what we call the Mariner Incentive Plan, which is a phantom stock um, plan. And we do offer um, that to – we have roughly 150 of our 350 advisors are in the plan. Um, We typically um, will invite people to join that plan when that three-year earnout is done. Got it. Makes sense. And so as you kind of think about the landscape as it stands right now, and you kind of mask that against the backdrop of Mariner, are there any specific niches you're focused on right now? RIAs, geography, or, or capabilities? You know, for, for us, um, obviously, the, the, the RIA space is our main target. Having said that, we're, we also look positive on, on the hybrid model um, as long as it's not a huge percentage of the business. Um, we want planners. We want planning-based advisors. Um, we we want to make sure firms' value proposition isn't investments only, so they have, they, they have a, a holistic planning component to it. In geography for us, it's interesting that you ask that, is when we started this process, we put pins on maps, and we said, you know, we want to go to these markets. Um, opportunities don't really follow your desired pins. And so we basically just backed up and said, you know, this is a talent acquisition strategy for us. This is not an AUM grab. This is not an EBDA grab. This is a talent strategy. And so, you know, backing up and looking at the talent inside the organization, has the founder done a good job of building out kind of the next generation of advisors inside their firm? Um, and that, that's really what our strategy is about. How do you make the second generation of advisors feel good when you're monetizing the first generation? It takes time. It's a challenge in that it's in in their minds. It's not a challenge once we get the, the opportunity to to explain our model. And, and our model is in a very advisor-centric model. And this is a simple business. And the more advisors you have doing a great job for clients, uh, you know, the better the firm is from a growth perspective. So we, we focus on two things with those individuals. The first one is we focus on surrounding them with tools and resources that help drive a better client experience and value proposition. And those, you know, are the, the, the trust company, the tax um, team, and all those things I mentioned before. And then the second thing we do, which is probably most important to them, is we feed them. 
We believe client acquisition strategies should be top-down, and advisors should be focused on being in front of clients and prospects, not building a funnel. So we build the funnel for them and drive them opportunities. And then the last thing we do is assuming that we think they are the next generation leadership of, of, of that organization, we put them in our incentive plan. That's really interesting and, and certainly very helpful. You mentioned um, before we got into that topic a little bit about deal structure and, and how the deal structures have really evolved for Mariner over time to kind of land you where you are today, which is you know predominantly being a 100% cash buyer. How did that evolve over time? Can you maybe comment on some of the initial deal structures that kind of led you to where you are today? Yeah, I think the, our approach in the beginning was more of a holding company approach. We would buy majority stake, typically 70%, and leave 30% in the hands of the local leaders. And that worked for us. The thing that we realized when we changed this was the end of 2018, the beginning of 2019, basically was we weren't getting lift from a synergy perspective. We weren't driving and building scale from a back office perspective, you know, we had at the time, you know, 24 LLCs under our umbrella and we had 24 back offices. Um, and, you know, as you know, as part of Dynasty, 24 back offices is impossible to manage. Got it. That makes, makes a lot of sense. So after a seller agrees to the terms of, of your deal, how do you close it? I mean, what are some of the common steps and missteps to go from signing to closing? Yeah, we, um, I start several of the answers with our process is simple. And I mean, that's, we try to keep things as simple as we can in, in what seems to be a complicated, you know, structure or complicated process for sellers. And, and we try to remind ourselves just because we've done 24 acquisitions, this is likely their only. And to, you know, slow down, back up and make it as simple as possible. So we start with a short form due diligence process that allows us to understand the economics of the business. And frankly, it leads us to be able to put a value on it. And we put that in writing in assuming that we're in the ballpark. Then we move through with, with real diligence and the going through the process of having them understand our organization and getting our hands around their organization to really feel like if there's a true fit or not. And, you know, then we go through the definitive agreement process and, and, and close and, and close the transaction. But, um, you know, as I said before, our, our diligence is all encompassing. But the, the primary thing that I personally focus on is the client experience and the culture. So you mentioned a couple of things there that I'd like to elaborate on. Uh, the first really being the short form due diligence process. What does that mean? Are, are there certain items whether it's the people themselves, the advisors, their back office, you know, versus maybe studying the financials, kind of what, what's your short form checklist that kind of helps you advance to the next level of diligence? And in that next level, what, what does that really entail? Yeah, so short form is it's financials. So it's both the PL and the balance sheet. It's an organization structure with roles and responsibilities and, and really understanding you know, who does what inside the organization. Obviously, we want to understand how the advisors and all the people inside the organization are compensated. 
And then we, you know, we, we want to understand what back office tools are utilizing, right? What's our performance measurement system? You know, what, what do they, what, if anything, do they have from a CRM perspective and all those types of things? Um, it gives us a perspective on how much synergies there are and that obviously impacts how we evaluate. And then I think the difference for us in, in the short form versus the real diligence is you know, the legal and compliance side of it. And, and, you know, that's definitely a deeper dive. And so when you think about the deeper dive, whether it's the legal, the compliance, can you comment a little bit on, on some of the vendors that you work with when you're engaging, you know, full-blown due diligence, you're obviously doing a lot of work internally, but do you engage externally working with lawyers, bankers, accountants, or, or anyone else to help you with, with truly understanding the business that you're looking to acquire? Yeah, so we made a decision um, quite a while ago that this was part of our business model. And so we have um, an eight-person corporate development team that's out trying to find opportunities for us. We have a team that's called our strategic initiatives team, which basically is our deal team of in-house lawyers and accountants that help through the process. Having said all of that, we do engage outside counsel and outside accountants um, to kind of just look over our shoulder and make sure that we're not missing something. And roughly about 50% of our opportunities are banker-driven, and 50% are opportunities we found ourselves. So when you talk about a banker-driven opportunity, is, is that something whereby an investment bank representing an RIA on the sell side comes to you and presents you with an opportunity? Yes, yes. And, and, and usually it's competitive and usually they're bringing it to a handful of other firms like ours. So how do you differentiate yourself when you're comparing Mariner versus other sellers that might be trying to jockey for position? Yeah. And as you know, there are a large number and a growing number of serial acquirers um, that have made their way into this business. And, you know, there are some similarities, but there are also, depending on the firm, there are a lot of differences. And, you know, for us, it's really talking about what our culture looks like and the fact that, that we are building an, an advisor attraction model and going back to the two things about surrounding them with tools and resources and feeding them. There's very few firms in the acquisition game um, that that have the ability to say that they will feed the advisors once they join. Can you dig in on that a little bit? Because I do think that's important when you think about the value add that Mariner brings to the table, being able to feed advisors with potential leads and opportunities is, is certainly something that's, that's unique and, and different. How do you go about feeding them with, with new opportunities? We, so we have um, kind of two separate business development groups, if you will. Um, one of them is traditional business development. We have 13 individuals um, that are, you know, work in the community, civic, charitable, centers of influence, and they build the funnel for our advisors the old-fashioned way, right? They're just turning over rocks looking, looking, for, um, looking for prospects for our clients to explain their value prop to. And then the second is um, a 35 dedicated individuals to um, strategic relationships. Um, so custodial referral programs. Um, we have a property and casualty insurance company that, that we're their in-house wealth 
um, solution for. We have 12 accounting firms that we have referral agreements with that were their in-house solution as well. And so the, the, those 35 individuals focus on you know, getting opportunities through other experts. Thank you. Can you take us through a few situations you were recently involved in, perhaps one that, that was a failure and a separate one, which was a success? How did you prevail? Yeah, it's interesting. So um, we win uh, when we get to invest time in the team. And so the, the, our success rate on, on opportunities that are, are you know, self-found is much higher than the investment banker-led deals. Um, and, and we really believe it's just the ability to really spend time with them. And it affects both sides because it affects, um, sometimes it affects our aggressiveness in the bid because we just didn't get to spend enough time to, to be that comfortable with it. But then it also impacts, you know, their knowledge and understanding of what the difference in Mariner is versus, you know, somebody else they might be considering. And, you know, the, the, I mean, a real recent one, um, you know, a, a firm that we were um, down to the final two on, and they they brought capabilities to our organization that we could have optimized across all 42 locations. Um, and, you know, we, you know, partially pandemic-related, um, we just didn't get to spend enough time with them to really elevate ourselves to win it. And, and at the end of the day, they ended up not choosing us. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean... And was that a banker-driven process? It, it was, uh, but it was one of the more well-run banker-driven processes through the pandemic. I mean, it, you know, it, as much as it is a challenge for the seller and the buyer, it's also a challenge for them, right? Because they're not sure. they're not able to line up, you know, the meetings the way they typically would either. Right, and and so as you kind of take a cross section of different banker-driven processes that you've participated in through the years and through the pandemic. Are there certain processes that work better than others and why? You know, I think a purely competitive situation that is, you know, driven off the book, if you will, and is positioned from a perspective that price is the number one thing that matters, we we don't compete well in those and frankly don't want to. I mean, the processes that truly allow for there to be a, a relationship to be built I think, you know, leads to a better outcome for both. And frankly, think it potentially leads to a better price for the seller as well. So when you think about the M&A process start to finish, but really from execution to closing, what would you say are some of the the largest hurdles that a, a buyer might experience in a deal process? You know, I think not truly understanding um, the decision-making process and, and and maybe that there's other decision makers that that you may or may not be aware of and that you don't necessarily get to spend the same amount of time with that happens um, you know on occasion and can you know cause hurdles that that you don't really see the one thing that I think is really important in this and and it doesn't matter which side of the table you're on is being very clear on the why and being able to explain why someone's even considering it and what they want, what is the right outcome? What is, what is the, you know, the number one choice of things? And, you know, if the seller, you know, will take the time to really truly understand those things and, you know, and how to articulate them, um, it makes it much easier. 
Got it. So are there any common pitfalls that you've experienced over the years that you'd want to share with the audience? You know, I think that I've alluded to this a couple of times, but I think, you know, the very first acquisition we ever did, um, as I mentioned, was in 2011 and it was a disaster. Um, financially it, it was a, it was a great transaction for us. Um, but the, the, the three largest revenue producers in the firm were not cultural fits. Um, and you know, within 18 months we asked them to leave and, you know, the, I think the, the, the fortunate part of that is it was our first transaction and it really has molded us, you know, into the diligence process we have today that is so focused on the culture. That's helpful and and definitely consistent as I've had conversations with uh, hundreds of, of firms out there. A lot of times getting their first M&A deal right is really difficult, no matter how much guidance and support they have. But the amount of learning from that just just makes them that much more competitive and, and that much more confident um, when they go at it again. So so definitely a consistent message hearing it from from someone like yourself. Marty, if you have any advice for RIAs out there that are considering selling their business, what would you tell them? Decide before you start, what's the profile of the partner that you're looking for? What are your non-negotiables? What are things that you you can't live with, you can't accept? And what are the things inside your organization that that are protected, that you want to remain the same? Are there individuals? Are there processes? What are, what are the things that um, are really important to you to keep? And have those conversations, you know, obviously as early as you possibly can. And I think that the thing to remember through the process is the buyer is in sales mode. It is the time for you to lay out you know, what you want things to look like post-deal and understand to do those before the deal is done. Marty, on behalf of myself, Dynasty Financial Partners, and everyone listening, thank you for joining us on our M&A podcast miniseries. As someone who has called on you as a banker for so many years, I think I can speak on behalf of all of our viewers that we learned a lot listening to you and about your approach to closing. I also think that your tips and best practices are good ones that hopefully resonate with our listeners and can use these tools into their own M&A playbook when trying to close their own deals. To all of our listeners, thank you all for joining us. I encourage you to visit us on our website at www.dynastyfinancialpartners.com to learn more about M&A, the power of independence, as well as gain access to valuable content for RIAs. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe to Inside the Deal on your favorite podcast platform or the episode page on our website. And feel free to email or call me if you have any specific questions or comments. I can be reached at 516-987-9397 or by email at hbalch at dynastyfp.com. That's H-B-A-L-T-C-H at dynastyfp.com. Please note that all discussions are handled with the highest level of discretion and confidentiality. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague that might benefit from its content. Also, if you enjoy listening to our show, please give it a star rating on Apple Podcast. This will help other advisors know it's a podcast worth their time listening to. I am Harris Balch, and this is Inside the Deal. We'll see you next time. Thank you.